We are in the book of Joel. So why don't you turn there at this time, Joel chapter one, as we begin this book. We looked at it um, on Sunday a little bit. Uh, we, we started to tap in uh, to the book of Joel. And this is a, a small book. Some people might dismiss it as small, but it's mighty, powerful, power-packed, and important. Um, and uh, even though it's got 2,036 words, depending on which translation you have, um, it is a very important book, and, uh, and it's gonna be uh, multi-layered in its prophecy. Um, and the main theme of this book is really the day of the Lord. You can jot that down, and we'll be diving into that concept of the day of the Lord uh, as we get into this. Um, the Hebrew for that is Yom Yahweh, or Yom Yehovah, uh, is the day of the Lord. It's a day that's coming, and we'll, we'll talk about the definition of that day. But this phrase, uh, Yom Yahweh, or uh, day of the Lord, is used five times in the book of Joel. It's, uh, we come across this phrase, the day of the Lord, 25 times, or 26 times, I should say, in the entire pages of the Bible. And uh, the day of the Lord really is, is um, often seen in the Old Testament which is interesting because you and I are much closer to the day of the Lord than they were. And yet, even in the Old Testament, the Lord handles it like it's coming soon. But you have to remember, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is with the Lord a day. So um, time is a, a bit of a relative issue when we talk about God, especially from God's perspective. And so uh, don't let that you know, bother you when people say, hey, the day of the Lord, is, we've been talking about that for thousands of years and it's supposed to come quickly. Um, don't be duped by these people. I, I was listening to a, a local pastor just a few days ago, actually, um, on a teaching. He was giving about Matthew 24, and I just couldn't believe my ears. He was saying, you know, these pastors, as he's reading, you know, things that are gonna happen in the last days. And, um, and he said, you know, every generation thinks they're living in the last days. Uh, you know, and, and, um, and, and you know, we, why would we be any different? And he even talked about how it's kind of arrogant for us to think we're living in the last days. And, um, and I thought, oh my. Uh, and then, and then it's, the funniest part is he had to read certain parts of that. And then it said, you know, and then Jesus said, be sober, so be vigilant and watch for the day he comes. And he's like, yeah, so we're supposed to be vigilant. Anyway, and he kind of blew over that part. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute. You know, this guy's saying, yeah, we shouldn't be vigilant or sober because everybody's been saying this from the very beginning. And then, and then he kind of blew off what Jesus was saying, the whole point. The point is, um, see, here's the thing, and I hope there's people watching online that are the critics on this one, because there's a bunch of people out there saying stuff like, oh, you Bible prophecy people, you know, you think that the end is near, uh, but they've been saying that for years and years, and, and you, can, you, know, you can scoff if you want to, you're just fulfilling Bible prophecy by doing that. Uh, Peter talked about those in the last day, they'll be scoffers saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? It's been like this from the very beginning. Uh, and that's exactly what so many churches and pastors are saying now when it comes to Bible prophecy and stuff like that. Um, by the way, uh, it, I, I've never said for sure it's gonna be the days we're living in for sure, uh, but I do get a suspicion that it is. Well, what if you're wrong? Well, then we're wrong like the rest of the history of the church, um, which is the whole point. We're supposed to live. God wants his people, whether it's 2021 Christians or uh, just 21 you know, the year 21, or I should maybe say 33 or 34. Um, the, the, the early church, those guys believed the Lord could come back in their time. And were they stupid? No, they were doing exactly what the Lord wanted them to do is have that perspective of eminence 
of his return. And um, to, to put this false dilemma out there that, well, you know, the churches that talk about Bible prophecy, they're just making predictions about things that are not coming true or whatever. Well, first of all, we're not making any predictions. We're saying, here's what the Bible says about the end times. I'm not predicting anything. The Bible predicts these things are gonna happen. And then we're supposed to watch those things and not be ignorant of the days we're living. And the Bible speaks about this over and over and over again. Um, and so don't be duped by these people that for, for whatever reason, and I, I've got theories, but for whatever reason, there's kind of this big move to say, ah, eschatology and end times and Bible prophecy, whatever. Um, we need to talk about, you know, balancing our checkbook and, and talk about our family and how to be married and um, youth and stuff like that. We need to be relevant today. And I'm just saying the Bible's relevant. Uh, go through the Bible, you'll be in great position to be relevant for the day. Um, and you'll also have to, if you read your Bible or, or go through your Bible, you'll have to deal with Bible prophecy. Otherwise, you know, like this one pastor, he's gonna have to dismiss one fourth of the Bible to say, yeah, whatever. I'm not willing to do that. And I hope you are not either. Um, and so when you hear these pastors, uh, love, the, love on them, pray for them. When they get raptured, they'll be going, oops. Um, and, uh, and they'll have to change their eschatological notes uh, uh, on their way up. Uh, but uh, I'm convinced they'll be convinced at that uh, time period. So, um, so really the book of Joel will require us to, to put on the, the lenses of the, prophets, of the prophets, you know, sometimes the multi-layers and distances. Um, we're gonna see multiple layers in the book of Joel. Um, there's two sections in this book. Um, and the first section is chapter one and into chapter two, all the way to verse 27. So chapter one to chapter two, verse 27 is the first half and it's called, we're gonna call it the day of the locust. And then chapter two, verse 28 to the end, chapter three, verse 21 is the day of the Lord. So the first half is the day of the locust. The second half is the day of the Lord. And we'll see that um, in the split there is chapter two, verse 27. That'll be kind of the end of the first half of the day of the locusts. Um, now, Joel prophesied, by the way, as one of the early prophets. Um, there were actually quite a few prophets in Bible times, um, at least 50, those that kind of keep count of such things. Um, you know, men who spoke um, on behalf of the Lord to the people. It was a, a ministry of the Old Testament, ended by John the Baptist, according to Jesus. But, um, but that prophecy ministry of the Old Testament, Joel was one of the early uh, prophets. And, um, and most believe that uh, Joel prophesied during, we don't know hardly anything about Joel. That's kind of the interesting thing. But we, we believe that he prophesied somewhere during the reign of Joash, who was the king of Judah in the South. Remember, Hosea was the prophet up in the North, the Northern 10 tribes. Now we're back down in Jerusalem and Judea. And that's where Joel is a prophet. Um, and uh, and he, that would mean, you know, if he was, if he was uh, prophesying during the reign of Joash, one of the kings of the South there, that means he was a contemporary probably of Elijah and Elisha. Maybe they knew each other um, and could have been friends, who knows? Although I don't think of um, either of those guys being very friendly, but I don't know. Um, but but uh, who knows? Uh, it'll be interesting to see some of those details um, when we uh, get to heaven, how, how they knew each other. But unlike many of the other prophets, Joel does not condemn Israel in his early prophecies at all of, um, uh, of idolatry. 
Um, and the reason why it's still fairly early in their history, the time Joel was prophesying and idolatry hadn't reached its feverish level of, of the time of Hosea and some of the other prophets that we've read uh, pr previously. Um, idolatry wasn't seemingly the great sin in Israel at the time of Joel's prophecy. Um, Joel's gonna mention only one specific sin. Anybody remember what it is? Anybody? Drunkenness, as it turns out. That's the, that's the one Joel's gonna land on. Uh, apparently people were getting sloshed there in Israel uh, and Joel had to call him out. And, and that's the one sin he's gonna mention. Now, it's not that they weren't doing other sinful things, but that's the one that he pulls out as the kind of the big problem of the day. And um, so Joel opens his prophecy with a, a, a unique description of a literal plague of locusts, as we saw on Sunday. But then he's gonna use that plague of locusts to compare with the future judgments, which will come upon not only Israel, but upon the whole earth. He's gonna uh, talk about the judgments that are gonna reach all the way into the book of Revelation and the time period of the tribulation. The first chapter is uh, considered dramatic, dramatic and, it's, and some people call it a literary gem, the way it's written in the original Hebrew. Um, it's a remarkable passage of scripture like anything else you'll find anywhere else in literature. Um, it's, it's really something. Um, and so we start off right out of the gate in verse one. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Um, now, uh, interesting, like I said, we don't know anything about Joel except for he's the son of Pethuel. Some people say, well, maybe he was one of the sons of Samuel because one of his sons was named Joel. But I don't believe that could be possible because do you remember right after um, Samuel has his sons listed there, do you remember what the sons were doing? Uh, they were taking bribes and doing all kinds of sinful things. Uh, the sons of Samuel were um, uh, really an abomination and Joel the prophet wouldn't have been that. So we believe he's a different Joel. Um, the Hebrew word Joel or Yoel, it, it means Jehovah is God. It's a, it's a very common name in Israel. Uh, means Jehovah is God. Petuel, the father, his name means vision of God. Um, so, um, you know, it does fit who this prophet is, giving the prophecy or the vision from God to the people. Uh, and that's verse one. Um, but then in verse two, he says something that's kind of like an exclamation. He says, hear this, ye old men, and give ear all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days? or even in the days of your fathers? In other words, have you seen anything like this? He's about to describe the locust infestation, but he's saying, you old men, have you seen anything like this in your lifetime? Now, this is another thing, by the way, uh, in speaking of end times prophecies and people saying, oh, we, we're just seeing stuff that we've seen. Everybody thought they were living in the end times. And, and I can see why, as somewhat of a fan of history and like, I like studying um, world history, but like no wonder so many people thought World War I was the end. Um, there, a lot of people called it Armageddon. Um, and, um, and it's because the battles were horrifying and the weapons used uh, killed you know, you know, so many uh, hundreds and thousands of men in just single battles. Uh, it's just an amazing, horrible time in the world, dark days. And you can see why people would say those things. But one of the things I'd, I'd just give you something to think about is um, a lot of the end times descriptions has to do with the heart of man to sin. You know, in the last days, the Bible talks about how people will um, have an itching ears and only wanna hear what they wanna hear. 
uh, there'll be a famine in the land concerning the word of God that nobody wants to listen. Um, The Bible talks about how they'll call good evil and call evil good. And one of the arguments, people, well, people have been doing that for thousands of years, calling good evil and evil good. And there's been you know, times where people didn't wanna hear the Bible. But here's something, just a little food for thought. One of the things you and I have seen is the global level of what we're seeing happening. Um, there's so much that we've seen, for example, homosexuality. Um, in the last 20 years, 25 years, we've seen it become mainstream. But you say, well, there's other times in history, the Romans were really into homosexuality, which they were. Uh, interestingly enough, right before their decline and fall. That's by the way, why they took that textbook out of the classroom, the decline and fall of the Roman empire, which was sort of uh, the key uh, book of history as, as it relates to Rome. The reason they took it out is the, the author lists the reasons why Rome imploded from the inside out. And it had to do with sinful uh, attitudes, uh, especially pride and um, uh, homosexuality. And so they they had to take, of course, that book out of the schools because it didn't line up with their worldview politically. Now, today, one of the things you're saying, well, so just like in the Roman times, but you have to understand during the Roman times, it wasn't global. It was just the Roman empire. You and I are seeing things that are very global in nature in attitudes and actions and sinfulness. And and that, that should be more of a sign of the times of the end the global nature of what we're seeing going on in the world. So people can say, ah, that's the same things. People are doing the same thing they did a thousand years ago. You can't say about almost anything, you can't say that globally, we've seen those kinds of things. Um, One of the biggest things we're seeing globally is interconnectivity. We're connected to each other like no other time in history. Um, And that's part of the requirements for the end times. People will see events right before their eyes globally. Um, like the, the book of Revelation talks about those two witnesses and the way they'll be handled in Jerusalem and the whole world will see them uh, when they come back to life and it'll freak the whole world out. Um, up until 40 years ago, we really didn't have live stream TV just showing us in real time what was going on. You only got reports of cameramen who happened to be there and maybe a, a, you know, a, a show that showed clips of something. But today we're watching things in real time. Uh, and the Bible predicted that. The whole world's gonna see certain events at the end. So I, I do believe we're living in the last days. It's possible that it could happen. If not, well, we'll talk about that when we wrap things up tonight. But, um, but I believe we really are living in those days. And so the same exclamation, have you, have you seen anything like this, Joel's saying? Some people in our culture, yeah, whatever, we've seen this stuff before. But um, as it turns out, this plague of of locusts in Jerusalem was like nothing that they'd seen ever before. Um, By the way, uh, one of the biggest plagues of locusts in history was in 1889 in uh, Algeria. 200,000 people died uh, because of that plague. Uh, That's quite a deal. Uh, You know, and we looked at the plagues of locusts on Sunday and how they swarm and all that stuff. But but he goes on here in verse three. He says, Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Um, What are they supposed to tell? They're supposed to tell what's happened. You know, this plague of locusts and what happened and why it happened, and they're supposed to pass it along to their kids. And that's something that every mother and father in the Bible are given that admonition to pass truth along to your kids. And just a quick question, mom and dad, you that have kiddos at home, are you doing your job? Are you passing truth along to your kids? 
because the Bible makes a big deal of this, you know, that we're supposed to tell this verse three to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, the things that God has sent or done, and especially their rebellious, you know, lessons, their lessons in their own rebellion. Um, and, um, and so the people are, are called to do this. And that raises that question. You know, I think by the way, if you read your Bible, the Lord really puts that on dads, that dads are supposed to be the ones to teach their kids the truth. Um, you know, like in Ephesians chapter six, verse four, where it says, and you fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, you know, a lot of dads don't realize it, but by their silence, their kids are getting angry. Um, if you're not teaching your kids, your kids are getting angry. And I've seen this way too many times as a youth pastor, as a senior pastor of a large church, I've seen um, kids that just grow up just angry because dad didn't do what he was called to do and give his kids the tools and equip them with truth. Um, there's so many people that are gonna teach your kids, whether you know it or not whether it's the schools or the influence of you know, um, advertising or video games. There are people, groups teaching your kids at a frantic pace like we've seen in no other time of history. And, and if you, dad, you're dropping the ball, you are really dropping the ball today. We, we've gotta have our a game A on. You know, we gotta be ready to roll to teach our kids and bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, speaking the truth from scripture. Um, I like what Deuteronomy chapter six reminded the Jewish dads, uh, this one in Deuteronomy six, verses six through seven. It says, and these words, which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Um, you're supposed to diligently teach your children godly truth. And not only your children, but your grandchildren. So grandma and grandpa, you know, you, you're supposed to do the same to make sure that your kids are being taught by your kids and you teaching your grandkids. What does that look like? Well, I love how Deuteronomy just spells it out. When you, stand, when you get up in the morning, speak truth to your kids. Um, when you rise up, you know, in the day, or when you go to bed at night, or when you're laid down, speak it into your kids' lives. Um, when you sit in your house, what are we supposed to do when we're sitting in the house? Um, today, everybody's on their iPhones, but you gotta get up from your iPhone and, and actually talk to each other and, uh, and communicate with your kids. And, um, and you know, I, I, I think that sometimes um, we, we miss so many good opportunities. You know, dad, mom, you've got stories when you were younger that your kids are gonna be interested in. Um, I, I found that a lot of parents don't tap into this thing of just the lessons that you've learned and things that you've been through. Um, tell them about Susie who scratched your face when you're in sixth grade on the playground. And why did that happen? And what did you learn from that situation? Or, or uh, the time you got in trouble when your Mr. Beach, uh, your fourth grade teacher showed up on your front doorstep to report you to your parents. Uh, I don't know anything about that, uh, but uh, no, no, that actually did happen to me. And I, but but I, 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 in fourth grade, like four or five times that happened to me. Fourth grade was my rebellious years. I always would tell my kids of my fourth grade years. Um, uh, I was joined a gang and uh, it was a really tough time for me. I was in a, it's truly, we called it the murder gang. Um, and I was in big trouble when I got home and my dad heard that I was a leader of the murder gang in the fourth grade. Um, we couldn't think of a worse word than murder, so we called ourselves that. 
Um, fortunately, we never did that to anyone. Um, but, um, but, you know, those are the kind of little stories that, you know, you can tell your kids, man, I had to learn a hard lesson this, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, hard lesson when I was in fourth grade by the, um, by the very uh, school of hard knocks, you know. And you can, really, you can really help your kids by giving them those things. I, my mom and dad, we would just literally sit around the dinner table and say, hey, mom and dad, tell us more stories about when you guys were kids. And me and my sisters would listen with bated breath because my parents had quite a story. Um, they lived in a crazy time in the 60s, you know, and when things were, uh, you know, the whole uh, love revolution and, and uh, hippies and that whole thing started happening. And my parents have some amazing stories, but man, those stories left huge impressions. And then my, my mom and dad would tell about how when they came to Christ and how things changed for them. And uh, they just worked that into us as we went. You know, this whole thing, uh, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, my dad would just say things, little throw out little reminders from those family devos we've had around the dinner table. And he would say, Brett, remember, the devil wants to get a handle on you. Or, or he'd say little phrases, watch out for number 69. There, there, there was a little thing that we talked about after a football game I played against this guy, number 69. It was a real problem for me. Um, and he said, there's always a number 69 in life. There's always someone who wants to get you and crush you. Um, and he said, you know, what do you do about that? And he taught me how to handle when you face a number 69 in life. And so that became a phrase, even to this day, my dad will say, hey, watch out, number 69 wants to get you. Um, and, uh, and he'll remind me that Satan wants to get a handle on you, you know? And man, you, you can have those little phrases that you, that you, you know, learned at Family Devos at the table, but as the kids are walking out to school, this is as you go and walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, just, just infusing your kids with wisdom. That's what we're all called to do, mom and dad. And I would suggest that in the, the days we're living today, man, there's a huge, huge, desperate need for parents to up their game on this particular calling that we have. Um, so those two passages, Deuteronomy 6, verses six through seven, along with Ephesians 6, 4, we're given that admonition. But here, the people of Joel's time, Joel says, tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So pass this along. This is something you should make a part of your history. Um, well, anyway, we go back to verse four. There it says, that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten. That which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. So we looked at this, I, at least I mentioned it on uh, Sunday and Saturday night, that there were these four kinds of locusts. And when you look up in the New American Standard Bible, it gives us a little more description, the gnawing locust, the swarming locust, the creeping locust, and the stripping locust, locust or the caterpillar. And there's, um, you know, those that love studying the uh, biological part of these little creatures and what have you. Um, some argue that these are the same little creatures or some are different species. Others say they're different stages when they're before they've transformed into their uh, second level. It depends on what you want, but you entomologists out there, there's plenty to study when it comes to the, the locust. Um, question, does anybody know how long does an average locust live? No one takes a guess? Three weeks, I heard that. Okay, five months, five months. If you look at your book uh, of locusts, uh, which I have, uh, they last five months. That, that's gonna come into play here in a bit. Um, but this is the, uh, the uh, bugs that are bugging the people of God. So verse five. 
Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong, without number, whose teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean, bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. When it says the branches are made white, this is the substance, the white powdery substance that these locusts would leave as they would go and chew and it would go through their little digestive systems and leave these little piles of white powder everywhere. Um, And it got hard to breathe. Even when the wind would come up, that dust from the locusts would just blow around and people couldn't even breathe. Um, But this is what that white dust is being talked about, made white. But he talks about it, verse six, a nation has come up upon my land strong without number. What nation are we talking about? Well, are we talking about A, bugs, B, Babylon, C, Revelation chapter nine, or D, all of the above? (laughs) You guys are like me in high school when I took all, uh, you know, the the multi, answer question, what is it? Uh, yeah, I'd always, you know, I always choose the all the above. Well, there's, maybe that's it, you know, maybe that's it, yeah. But this is it, all of the above. When, when Joel uses this um, language, some people who look at the Bible uh, sort of single dimensionally, um, they, they say, oh, this is about bugs, an army of bugs, but it's more than that. And I'll show you what I mean. We're talking about the army of bugs that came to destroy um, Judah but it's also gonna have moments of foreshadowing when the Babylonians would come. And um, there's some, some hints there. And even some would say Joel's linguistic style is a bit hyperbolic or, or he's exaggeratory. But um, you realize that it's not exaggeratory if you're talking about the Babylonian empire coming ultimately and doing the destruction, God's army. Um, and then especially when you look at Revelation 9, I'll show you that here in a few minutes. But um, if you've said all of the above, you're correct. Bugs, Babylonians, and Revelation 9, all are which Joel is sort of multi-layering, putting on the different lens to show further down through history. That's what this is all about. Well, um, verse eight, uh, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. The field is wasted, the land mourneth. For the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vineyard uh, vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languisheth the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering, the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. So, Um, When it comes to this weeping, howling, mourning, and um, lament, some of you are saying, well, that's the doom and gloom of the Old Testament, 
right there. When you read the Old Testament, I, some people say, that's why I don't like the Old Testament. But the thing I'm reminded of is these feasts. You know, when he talks about the, the, the drink offering, verse nine, which by the way, the drink offering in the Bible gets very little mentioned. Joel pulls that one out and mentions that first. But why is he bringing that up? Because there is no offering for the drink offering and the fields are all wasted. Um, so there are seven major feasts of the practicing Jews um, and most of them all are celebratory and rejoicing. The one that tends to be a little more somber and almost depressing is the uh, Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement. Um, and that's because they were serious about their sins and the priests would be going into the Holy of Holies. But once he'd emerged from that time, after everybody very depressed and sad, once he'd come out of the Holy of Holies, they'd have a great celebration and a feast. But these seven feasts were all, other than the Day of Atonement, they were supposed to be very celebratory and fun and bring joy to the people. Um, but not so in this time. He says, you can lament and mourn because there's nothing to offer the Lord. The, the, the fields that you'd normally be bringing your offering to the Lord, they were all stripped bare. The wine, there was no drink offering. There was no way to offer this to the Lord. And so they were stripped of their joy. Um, interesting to me that the Lord wants them to be joyful. But because of their own sin, that joy was stripped from them. Um, you know, I, I do believe that the Lord really is interested in you having joy. Um, the problem is we tend to think joy is based on our circumstances alone. But joy should never be dictated by our circumstances. Joy as a Christian should be dictated by a person, and that is Jesus Christ. Um, you and I can have joy even though our shelves might be bare, or we might be sick, or we might uh, have lost a loved one. Um, you know, our joy can be full because the Lord is the, uh, the, he's the joy that he gives to us. He wants to give us joy. But one of the things we learn is um, the, the joy of a Christian is robbed by the sin of the Christian. Sin will rob you of joy. And, and um, don't let that happen to your life. So many people walk around so sad and depressed. And, and I wonder if there's sometimes, it's, it's just a matter of unconfessed, undealt with sin that is robbing us of the joy that the Lord would have for us. So they were mourning because there was nothing to offer the Lord and, um, and, and uh, they, they were in their sins. And so they found themselves uh, saddened. And even the, even the priests and everybody's wearing sackcloth and they're howling and weeping and mourning and all that stuff. Uh, pretty, pretty dark picture Joel paints here uh, up to verse 13. And then he goes in verse 14, sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into your house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. So there we have that kind of mentioning of the day of the Lord, mark that well, because that's gonna come up as a major theme here, especially in the last half of the book. Verse 16, is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down. For the corn is withered. How, uh, how do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of water are dried up 
and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So not only do they got, they've got the plague of locusts, they've got kind of like we had a few uh, last two summers ago, you know, the fires that caused so much desolation. In the Holy Land, it's hard, you're hard pressed to find a lot of vegetation anywhere. So whatever the locust didn't get, the fire devoured the rest. And so the cows are standing around perplexed. I don't know what that looked like, um, but they're like, uh, where's all the food, you know? Um, and, uh, and the Lord just says, man, declare a day of fasting. Uh, fasting there in verse 14 is reserved for people when they're desperate or in great need, they would fast before the Lord. And um, I think it's kind of funny, the Lord says fast. Oh, by the way, there's no food anyway, so you might as well fast. Um, the food is all gone. The day of the Lord is coming. Destruction is coming, verse 15. But, um, so, but verses 16 through 20 tells us not only were there bugs, but the drought and no water, and it caused all kinds of trouble. And so he goes on there now in Joel chapter two, let's, let's go on to verse one. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. Um, interesting, uh, we start chapter two with this blowing of the shofar trumpet. Uh, tuck that away as we're talking about uh, the book of Revelation as it relates to the bugs and the locusts and the end times and the day of the Lord. Um, there's pieces you gotta note here. So the shofar horn's gonna be blown here in chapter two. The day of the Lord's coming and is near at hand, verse, verse one. But it goes on in verse two. And the day of darkness and the day of gloominess, a day of clouds and a thick darkness. Normal day in Portland. <laughs> as morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong uh, and strong, uh, there hath not ever been in the like, neither shall be any more after it. Even to the years of many generations, a fire devoureth before them and behind them, a flame burneth, and a land as in the garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and as horsemen, so shall they run. So uh, interesting, uh, keep this little description of, of these locusts being like horses and horsemen. Um, uh, did you ever notice uh, that a locust, uh, here, I'll blow up a bug for you here. Uh, is that big enough? Yeah, there you go. Um, so in, in Germany, the word for locust is, and I'm not good with my pronunciation, uh, Hupford, which uh, is, it means hay horse, uh, hay horse. Uh, in Italian, it's, uh, uh, I think it's cava, uh, cavaletta, which means little horse. Um, so it's funny because throughout history, they've seen that locusts, some of the locusts almost have like a little bit of a long face like a horse. And so there's always this link to these locusts and horses, and that's what the, the Bible even says, their appearance of them, verse four, is the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so they shall run. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing that um, the Bible refers to locusts as horses. Keep that in mind, again, a key phrase that's gonna come up in the book of Revelation. In, in verse five, it says, um, like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, shall they leap like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face, the people shall be much painted. All faces shall gather blackness. Um, that's an interesting translation the King James does there saying their faces shall 
gather blackness. Um, most of your newer translations says their faces all went pale. Well, which one is it? Black face or pale? Um, well, it's, it's a better translation that their, their faces were, went pale when they realized um, that, um, uh, that, they, that they were uh, just, just destroyed by these locusts. And they shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall um, and they shall march everyone on his ways and they shall not break their ranks. Interesting how the Lord, he, as we saw on Sunday, the Lord calls this plague of locusts his own army. But one of the things the Bible says is these locusts have an ability to sort of uh, go without a king. Remember uh, when we did a, a study in Proverbs on the little fellers, the bugs, and how God uses bugs, the ant and rock badger and the coney and all this stuff. We talked about all that stuff. But in Proverbs 30, verse 27, it says, uh, the locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them, by bands. They're, they're, they're able to sort of... Um, deploy as an army. And here the Lord is basically saying that about these locusts. They don't even break their ranks because God uses them all with one accord. It's amazing how we can't even get united oftentimes as a church, uh, but the bugs can. The Lord says, I can get a bunch of locusts together and they'll do what I tell them. Um, but man, what would happen if the church became unified and smart like a bug and uh, we, we wouldn't break our ranks? I feel like people are breaking ranks today when it comes to things of faith and some of the overreaches that people are trying to push on you right now and mandates and stuff. I think the breaking of ranks is causing uh, there to be weakness. Um, I think we're called to be one and united and that's something for the church to always strive for. But that's, that's what the locusts are doing here. Um, then it goes on, uh, verse eight. Neither shall one thrust out another. They shall walk everyone his path. And when they fall on their sword, uh, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run up the wall. They shall climb up on the houses. They shall enter in the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble and the sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withal, uh, withdraw their shining. Now notice verse 11. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army for his camp is very great. He is strong that executeth the word for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible and who can abide it? Now this is where either, and some people try to say, well, uh, Joel is being uh, exaggeratory and uh, it wouldn't be this big of a deal. A plague of bugs darkening the sun. Maybe it was, we don't know, we weren't there. But minimally, um, we believe that Joel is talking about layers of prophecy. And again, he's starting to tap into this idea of the great day and the very terrible day of the Lord, verse 11. And this is where, um, you know, the day of the Lord, it's when, um, when the Lord is gonna, what is the day of the Lord? This is an important phrase you need to know in the Bible. The day of the Lord is when the day of man is over. You might put it that way. That might be your first definition you can write down in your notes. The day of the Lord is when the day of man uh, is over. It's almost like when God says, okay, time's up. I've given humanity free reign uh, to have dominion over the earth, um, to do what they wanna do, have free will, but there's gonna come a day where the Lord's gonna say enough. Now there's debate on when will that change? Like what's the official mark of the, of the end of that? Um, and um, I'll just tell you, um, I'll give you a little bit of my take on it. And then you can search the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true or false. But there's a few events that are, uh, I think we can start zeroing in when the day of the Lord really begins. Uh, 
when will the Lord say, okay, enough? Well, it seems in Revelation, pardon me, Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, talking about the Jews, there's gonna come a time called the fullness of the Gentiles. And that's when God's gonna say, okay, that's, that's it. That's all the Gentiles that are gonna be saved from this day forward. And so that fullness of the Gentiles, and then there Romans 11, 25 and 26, it says, and then all of Israel shall be saved. Um, what is that talking about? Well, when the fullness of the Gentile church comes in, God says, that's enough. If you read your Bible, um, it seems there in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, that's gonna be the, 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 the rapture of the church when God says, that's it, time's up. The church is gonna be taken up to be out of this world. Well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. From that day forward, we'll, we'll be with the Lord from that day for all of eternity. Um, the word caught up there, of course, rapture in the Latin Vulgate translation, harpazo in the Greek, just means to be caught up in the air. And so um, could it be that the rapture of the church is the fullness of the Gentiles, which sort of kicks in the day of the Lord when God says, okay, now I'm gonna intervene on behalf of, of this world and take the control away from humanity. And that's gonna be marked by the tribulation period. Um, the tribulation period, of course, is that seven year period. The last three and a half years, Jesus identifies as the great tribulation. And Jesus said, like no other time in the history of the world, well, it'll be this tribulation period. And so you say, okay, Brett, got it. So the day of the Lord is when God intervenes with humanity. And, and that, that tribulation period is the time of the wrath of the lamb, God's wrath being poured out on a Christ rejecting sinful world. Now you'll hear some debates and, and I wouldn't die on this battlefield. Maybe the day of the Lord starts at the abomination of desolation. Some people believe that where um, that's when uh, Antichrist will set himself up to be worshiped in the temple three and a half years into the seven year period. Um, uh, that, some people say that's the beginning of the day of the Lord. And, and we, could, we could discuss that uh, over some coffee or tea and it'd be an interesting, uh, great conversation. Uh, but I wouldn't die on the battlefield either way. But the tribulation period, the rapture of the church, that general area is the mark of when the day of the Lord begins. And it's where he intervenes even all the way through the millennial kingdom. So the day of the Lord is not a literal day as much as it's like um, the, a beginning point and a time period. It's called the day of the Lord in the Bible. Now, don't confuse this, by the way, with a phrase you'll come across a few times in the New Testament called the day of Christ. Um, some people get their eschatology all messed up because they combine the day of the Lord with the day of Christ, two separate things. I believe when you come across that phrase, day of Christ in the Bible, we're talking about the rapture of the church. That's when Christ, raptures his church, his bride, um, and takes us to be with him. So right now, you and I are living in the church age. We're living in the age of the Gentiles. Um, and, um, and we're living in a time where people, it's not just us, it's people are talking about the end of the world. If you, if you typed in to Google tonight, um, end of the world, you'll get 4.657 billion entries <clears throat> about the end of the world. Like people are interested about what's going on with the world. Um, and you don't wanna be ignorant about these things of the signs of the times, um, of when the day of the Lord's coming. And I believe there's all kinds of important signs that we talk about in our prophecy updates about when that day of the Lord's coming. The rapture of the church, I think could happen right now. There's nothing that needs to happen for the rapture to happen. 
Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog Magog invasion is something we keep our eye on because we know that it's gonna be somewhere near the beginning of the day of the Lord, whether it's right before the rapture or right after the rapture, don't know for sure. Um, but um, there, it is interesting that all those players, Turkey, Russia, and Iran are, are uh, lined up at the Northern border of Israel to do exactly what Ezekiel 38 says is gonna happen in the last days. Um, those nations are postured. And um, um, you know this potential invasion of uh, Russia into the Ukraine, it all plays into that stuff. We'll probably talk about some of this stuff in our upcoming um, you know, uh, prophecy update that's coming up in January. Um, but you know, one world leader, cashless society, pestilence, disease, famine, nation rising against nation, ethnicity against ethnicity. These are all things Jesus talked about as being signs of the times. Um, maybe you've seen this one, uh, it's kind of gone big uh, viral really um, in the last couple of days. Um, the, the Swedes are always up to interesting things with uh, chips and what have you, but have you seen implanted microchips could be used to verify COVID-19 vax status. And it, it's an interesting thing. They, these guys in Sweden have already, you know, got this up and running now. Um, basically this implanted microchip would uh, make it so you could go in and out of places because you're vaxxed and you're able to go wherever you wanna go freely. Uh, Stockholm, Sweden, uh, microchip technology invented by Swedish, uh, Swedish startup company Epicenter is now being presented as a possible way to carry around a COVID-19 vaccine report under a person's skin according to this viral uh, video that's kind of gone nuts the last couple days. And this guy makes his big case of why it's so wonderful and it's really gonna free the world as we get this. Now you're saying, Brett, are you suggesting that this is the mark of the beast? No. But it absolutely shows how the mark of the beast could easily be sold uh, to the global uh, you know, uh, world as, hey, let's just be good citizens of the world. Have you noticed how shamed people are that have not gotten the vaccination? Um, can you imagine when it gets down to what the Bible talks about, you will neither be able to buy or sell unless you take the mark. And the Bible's preposition is, there's no confusion. It's not on your forehead or on your hand or wrist. It's literally in. Uh, there'll be a mark in your forehead, in your hand, and you'll be able to get in and out of things uh, and you will be able to buy or sell. It'll be a cashless society, according to the Bible. Um, the reason this is just interesting is um, it's not only the technology that you, you need to have the mark of the beast, um, but you can almost sense sort of the motive or the method, how they're gonna sort of employ this sort of technology and really require the whole world to get it. And the Bible says by that time, when that happens, and I don't believe we'll be here, I think we're gonna be raptured in heaven. But by that time, which could be a few years down the road, if we get raptured tonight, three years later, uh, three and a half years later, you can see an implementation where they say, okay, it's time to, uh, to get chipped. And if you don't get chipped, you will die. Um, some, of, some of you have seen some of the memes that have come out of uh, Biden's uh, Christmas cards and stuff like that this past, because his warm Christmas greetings, basically uh, everybody's gonna die, especially the unvaccinated, and you kind of deserve it. If you are an unvaccinated, you deserve that. Like it's, it's really quite a, a dark and creepy message that our came from the White House this week. Um, um, but <clears throat> there's gonna be a message during the tribulation period that's gonna be very literally, um, get chipped or get marked or die. Um, and, uh, and it's all for the good of all of humanity, blah, blah, blah. That's gonna happen. 
Now, some of you might be saying, Brett, I don't know about all this, you Christians talking about all this stuff. Well, just if you want, wait and see. Uh, if suddenly the church is raptured and we're all gone and disappeared, don't believe the new agers saying they've been taken into a, another realm so we can bring in the age of Aquarius. No, we've been raptured and taken up to be with the Lord. And then you have a decision to make. Are you gonna take this mark that the Bible says that that's the last thing you'll do that will doom you for all eternity to hell is the mark of the beast. Um, the, the Bible tells us that that's gonna happen. Um, well, then maybe I'll just wait and see if you're all raptured. Then I won't take the mark. Oh, we'll talk about that in a second. But, um, but all that to say, you know, um, 2 Peter 3, 9, I mentioned this earlier, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but his long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is why it seems the Lord uh, seems to be delaying his coming. Um, and he's wanting to see as many people saved as possible. That's why we haven't seen the rapture of the church, according to the Bible. And we won't until the Lord says, okay, that's it, the fullness of the Gentiles. Um, now you and I, we can be comforted by this. Some of you are like, Brett, this is freaky. Mark of the beast and the end and the tribulation. But don't, don't forget one of the great promises right after we read about the rapture of the church in chapter four, First Thessalonians chapter five says, for God hath not appointed us, believers, to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because we accept the work of the cross. If you accept Jesus, confess your sins and repent. The Bible says the Lord will forgive you for your sins and you will not be part of the day of the Lord from the perspective of the earth and the world being judged, but will be from the perspective of being with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. And so the day of the Lord <clears throat> starts, in my opinion, with the, the beginning of the tribulation, the rapture of the church, the beginning of the tribulation and goes through the millennial kingdom. Um, and you might say, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, this, is, this might have to do with more, if you're a Christian, maybe more to do with some of your loved ones and friends and family members. Because Joel's prophecy is not just this horrible bug prophecy, it's, it, it goes way deeper. And would you keep your finger here and turn with me to Revelation chapter nine. And I wanna show you the parallel passage of the book of Joel. It's found in Revelation chapter nine. Best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, right. Um, so remember when the, we saw in Joel chapter two, the sounding of the trumpet? We have another trumpet um, blown here um, in verse one of chapter nine, Revelation 1, 9, uh, 9, 1, I should say. It says, and the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Um, interesting here, um, the, the, the idea is um, um, the, when it says the star had fallen, um, a lot of your translations um, miss this, especially the King James, but it, it means uh, he had fallen like a long time ago. It's a past tense uh, sort of thing. There was a star that fell from heaven a long time earlier. And so some believe this is talking about the casting out of Lucifer from heaven. So we're talking about that. And from, and, and from you know, heaven to earth, and then he was given the key to the bottomless pit. Greek word there, abuso, which is where um, demons are stored in 2 Peter chapter two, verses four and five, talks about this place where the particular, remember in Genesis, the demons that were particularly disobedient came down from the heavens and had these crazy weird relationships with the, the sons of men and the daughters of, the daughters of men and the sons of God. 
It's a crazy story. You can pick up our teaching in Revelation 9 if you want a detailed description of this. But here it says that it's that abuso where there's particularly bad demonic figures that God has locked away there since Genesis chapter five. Um, And they'll be loosed during the tribulation period. Demons that were, the Bible says, particularly disobedient. Some of you guys are looking at me like, are you crazy, Pastor Brett? Do you guys remember what I'm talking about there? Oh, good, okay, good. Maybe it's just uh, me. Uh, But uh, yeah, so these demons are gonna be loosed here. Um, Verse two, and he opened the bottomless pit and there arose a smoke out of the pit. The smoke is a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and upon them were given power as the scorpions of the earth to have power. Uh, the idea is power to kill. And verse four, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Who are the ones who had the seal of God in their foreheads? Revelation chapter seven, 144,000 Jewish people that are gonna have the seal of God during the tribulation period. It's a very clearly Jewish people, not Jehovah's Witness. Um, <laughs> they're listed by tribe for crying out loud there in Revelation seven. Um, but, um, but these people that have the seal of God, um, you know, uh, will be particularly, uh, um, it says, you know, don't hurt any green thing, green tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God. So that's everybody but the 144,000 Jews that are alive during that time. Verse five, and to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be torment, tormented five months. Do you guys remember how long a locust lives? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion, which strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women and their teeth were as teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions that were stings in their tails. And the power was to hurt men five months. And the king, they had a king over them, um, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue is uh, as the name Apollyon, which all, both of those names mean destroyer. Um, one, uh, one woe is past and behold, there comes two woes more hereafter. So the fifth angel of the sounding of these trumpets in the book of Revelation, gives us sort of this plague of locusts. But do you get a sense this is even more crazy than what Joel the prophet saw? John the apostle sees something and we see all kinds of parallels in our reading of Joel chapter two. Um, the similarities are, you know, the, the time period they're gonna hurt, um, the, the horses, uh, you know, faces and all this. Like some of this is all very much the same. But then his, his gaze seems to go to be even more kind of crazy. Um, you know, what are these locusts? Are they actual locusts? I don't think so. Are they possibly demons? It's possible. Some Bible eschatology students would say these are demonic entities coming out and they got these crazy appearances. <clears throat> Some say, and this is possible, that these are 
um, demonic entities that will come out and fill the, um, you know, the, the men of the earth, um, even as demons possess men, but will possess the men who are in the army of this antichrist. And this is part of his weaponry of the tribulation period. Do you remember when we were in the book of Daniel, this antichrist character, what is gonna be the thing he worships? Anybody? Weaponry and powerful uh, destruction tools. Uh, he's gonna um, worship the God of munitions. If you remember, we talked about that. So it's not uh, shocking that here in the, in the middle of this tribulation period, we see these locusts. And then when you read this description, picture yourself John the apostle on the island of Patmos. And you're just minding your own business. You've been exiled there. And suddenly you have this vision of modern day warfare. What would that look like? Um, some of you sci-fi people, has any of you guys seen uh, Dune, the most recent Dune? I haven't, but I'm told that it's interesting because they chose to make these really kind of Apache-like helicopters for the future sci-fi kind of thing, but they're actually locusts. They're these giant helicopter locusts um, kind of things. Can you imagine if John, what, how would you describe a, a, um, an Apache helicopter or something like that? I think this is actually a pretty good description. The shapes of these locusts, verse seven, were like unto horses prepared to battle, their heads as it were crowns like gold. Um, and um, their faces were as faces of men. You could look at these things and you'd see the face of men inside. Um, and they had uh, hair as the hair of women. Most uh, guys do today. No, just kidding. Um, and their teeth are as the teeth of lions. That also parallels the book of Joel, chapter one, verse six. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. But notice these locusts, uh, the, the apostle John is trying to talk about says, their sounds, how would you describe an, uh, you know, a, a fleet of Apaches flying overhead? Um, that's probably the only thing you could think of, sounds of their wings were as the sounds of chariots with many horses running into battle. Um, you know, maybe John's seeing modern weapons uh, that the Antichrist, are, or he's going to deploy during the tribulation period. And the men that are gonna be involved with using those are gonna be part of the Antichrist, the false prophet, the beast, and Satan himself. Um, all described here, um, it's gonna bring a sting of death to most men during that time period. So, um, so this is where we kind of see Joel and his multi-layered deal. You got bugs, literally, you got Babylon coming, but you also have Revelation chapter nine that um, a lot of scholars see as a sort of a template that Joel is talking about when his gaze goes all the way out to the day of the Lord, the end, the tribulation period, we're talking about these demonic entities that will come out in, in uh, Revelation 9. Are you with me on that? You guys see that? Okay, good. Well, back to Joel chapter two. Um, so that's the bad news. <laughs> but, um, but we actually have some good news and we looked at this uh, mostly on Sunday, but I skipped a few verses. So I wanna make sure we get everything in before we pack it up tonight. Um, in, in verse 12, do you remember? We saw several things um, that, we, that we learned about what to do if you were in Joel's day or if you're in our day, uh, what do we do? Well, the first thing you're supposed to do, we learned on Sunday is repent. We need to repent of our sins. And that's verses 12 and 13. Therefore, also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. That's repent. And with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who, verse 14, knoweth 
if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. So the first thing that people are told by Joel is to repent. The second thing, do you remember what it was? Yes, regather. Uh, and he says that in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast and call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of, his, out of her closet. Um, in other words, with urgency, come out and, and, and gather with the people. Uh, verse 17, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine inheritance or their heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Verse 18, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil and you shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen, but I will remove far from you the Northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the East sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and, it shall, and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. So here we see basically uh, we are to regather. And then once the people are regathering to worship the Lord, then the Lord's gonna bless them and he's gonna give them corn and food back. And he's gonna drive the army of locusts to the desert where there's nothing more for them to feed on where they end up perishing there. So there will be an end to the judgment of God. Um, on the people. And that's true both here in Babylon and in the book of Revelation. And then after we regather, then we're called to number three, rejoice. We saw verse 21. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit and the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, the palm worm, and my great army which I sent among you. And, verse 26, you shall, be, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed. So, so here you have, um, you know, we rejoice that the Lord restores, is gonna bless. And then it just, we saw on Sunday, he will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Um, and then verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of you of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. The Lord never bails on his people. He never says, I will forsake them. Uh, don't ever be part of a group that says God is done with Israel because he's not. They're still God's chosen people and we still have uh, much to see about what the Lord's gonna do with the Jewish people. Now, this is the natural break between these chapters, Joel chapter one and two and a half, or you know, two, half of two. Um, but on next time we get together, which won't be next Wednesday, but Lord willing, the following, 
We're gonna see where Peter is going to quote the prophet Joel word for word uh, coming up in a verse ahead. And it's gonna be a major, major game changer um, with the church when Peter preaches that first sermon in the book of Acts. We'll talk about that uh, when we pick up the book of Joel um, after the Christmas season. So there it is. Uh, that's, that's it. Good job. We, we covered at least the first half, uh, the day of the locust. And next week, next time, the day of the Lord. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, how thankful I am that there's an end in sight to not only the world's craziness, but there's an end even into your wrath and your judgment. Lord, we're thankful that you have a plan and a purpose. And I, I pray that we would be your people and follow after you, that we would do all these things that the prophet Joel spells out for his people, that they repent of their sins and regather and worship um, and then rejoice at all the good things that you've done. But ultimately acknowledge that you're the one who restores the years the locusts have eaten. Lord, I know there's a lot of people in this room who've allowed sin to hurt them. Marriages that have been blown up, kids and families that are in rebellion, jobs that have been lost and relationships destroyed, but Lord, you're the one who restores. Thank you for being a restorative God, taking those things that the, the evil one means for evil and you're able, Lord, to turn those things around for good. So we're so thankful. And we pray that you do that not only with our lives personally, but globally, Lord, as so much of this world has gone astray and they've turned to their own way. Lord, we wanna be your people and we wanna represent you well. So give us strength in the days we're living. Help us to be bold. Help us to live rightly in these days. Help us to look to the word for guidance. We thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen.